I want to thank you for joining us today for our journey to the cross. Our journey to the cross and our journey to Easter. And today, as I said earlier, we're going to be looking at the Last Supper. And so as we're looking at the Last Supper, it's something that many churches do pretty regularly. And as they do it pretty regularly, one of the things I want to make sure that happens even this morning, my prayer is, is that we can get past the regular, common uh, routine of doing communion and see it for what it truly is. Because this table that we're going to look at today is something that should never be taken for granted. It should never be taken for granted whether we do it weekly or monthly or quarterly or however we do it. It should be never taken for granted. And the reason for this is, is this table is a reminder that the purpose, that the goal, that, that the objective and really that the climax of Jesus' life was a sacrificial death and resurrection. And that is what we celebrate this, this day. One thing I think we have a tendency to do, even when we come to church and even when we, we get into our regular routine, is we have a tendency to forget that Jesus came to the earth with the purpose of dying. For you and for me. And this is where our journey has headed as we're talking about this journey to the cross. We're talking about this journey to Easter. But really, this journey has been this way since the very beginning. What we look at today was not some alteration to the plan. It is and was the plan. And so as we look at this, uh, we have to understand it's not an accident. It's not some bad ending to a good beginning. This is the reason why Jesus came, to die for sinners like you and me. The sacrifice of Christ is the focal point of Scripture. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, says he came to give his life as a ransom for many. Like I said, this, this is the whole point of Scripture. I, I read this this week. He said the death of Jesus Christ is not the end of the story. It is the theme of the story beginning to end. If you've been with us for the last couple of years, we've been going through the Gospel Project. We've told you the Old Testament points to Jesus, the Gospels are about Jesus, and the New Testament points back to Jesus. And as we look at that, one of the things I, I want to do is maybe break that down just a little bit more because the Old Testament, I believe, really started to lay out the beginnings of what Jesus was going to do. And wow, the meaning of Jesus' death and what it actually means and what we can hold on to is actually explained in the Old Testament. See, if you go back to Adam and Eve, when they sinned, do you realize that God had to sacrifice an animal to cover Adam and Eve's sin? Just a, a few years later down the road, you have Abraham. Abraham, we see that God himself would provide that sacrifice for the sin. And there's a, a, a reference there as he's going to sacrifice his son Isaac and he provides the ram in the thicket. Then you begin to see the definition of the sacrifice. It has to be a blood sacrifice. And the idea that that sacrifice, that substitute to be given by God would be in the place of what we need to be given. And then we come to this Passover meal. And in that Passover meal, you'll see that the lamb is supposed to be without spot or blemish. And all this in the Old Testament is preparing us for Jesus Christ. 
the ultimate sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice, the gift of God in our place, and that unblemished lamb. Then we come to the New Testament, and we said the New Testament really focuses on Jesus, especially the Gospels. Did you realize that anywhere between 20 and 40% of each of the Gospel books focuses on the cross? If you've been with us, you know that we've been in the book of Matthew the last couple of weeks, looking at this last week of his life. But did you know the last eight chapters of the book of Matthew actually focus on this last week? It's a 28-chapter book, but the last eight chapters focus on one week. It's kind of mind-blowing when you really think about it that way. Then you jump into the book of Acts, and really the book of Acts, to do a very, very quick summary, it's this. It's the world's reaction to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's recorded in the book of Acts. Then you jump to the epistles, Paul's letters, I've been going through Paul's letters for the last about uh, 30, 40 days. It's a, it's a reading plan on you version if you get involved in those. It has you reading through all of the different, um, all the different books along the Bible uh, uh, that Paul has written. And one of the things that stood out to me was if Paul were to write a letter to the church today, what would he write to us? What would he tell us? Well, what he told them then was, this is what Jesus has done for you. This is how you should live. I think he'd do the same thing to us. I don't think he's necessary because he kind of covers it all in what we have in the Bible already. So we have this whole thing moving. The Old Testament pointing towards Jesus. The Gospels talking about Jesus and seeing Jesus' life. The rest of the New Testament pointing back. And then you have Revelation. And Revelation really is that you meet the lamb that was slain. And in that, he's going to return as the king of kings and lord of lords, as we've talked about already. So everything in the Old Testament, moving to the cross, the gospels about the cross, New Testament, pointing back to it, it's all represented in what we're going to do today. And that's why I truly believe we cannot take this table for granted. The death of Jesus Christ is the whole focal point of the redemption story. It's not an accident, but instead it is the apex. It is the climax of the plan of God. From the slain animals of Genesis to the slain lamb of Revelation, it all ties together in Jesus Christ and what we're going to do today. So, with all that, if you have your Bibles, I would love for you to actually go to the book of Luke today. This is a story that's recorded in all four Gospels. I'm not sure if you got the email on, Mon or on Friday, but I asked you if you could read all four Gospel accounts because it's very interesting how Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John look at this story in different perspectives, in different angles. But I want to look at Luke's today as we dive in. So if you have your Bibles open, Luke chapter 22, and we're going to be starting in verse number 7. So Luke chapter 20, verse 7 says this, then the day of unleavened bread came when the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare it, they asked him. See, in Israel, each year for the Passover feast, families were supposed to buy approved lambs uh, that didn't have spot or blemish like we've already talked about. But then it was actually taken to the temple for sacrifice. And there's a crazy picture that, that um, was kind of written out. They said, you know, the population of Jerusalem would actually swell to five to six times the, the normal amount. And 
a lamb could be really representative of two families. That was kind of Jewish law. So if you had five to six times the amount of people all coming in and all doing lamps, they actually said the sacrifice would literally have blood running down the streets. This is the, the picture that we get. And so Jesus tells, uh, he says to Peter and John, you need to go make these preparations. You need to go find this lamb. And then you need to prepare it for us in such a way for Passover feast. So we pick up in verse 10. He says, Listen, he said to them, when you enter the city, a man carrying a water jug will meet you. And that's an important thing because generally, as we see throughout Scripture, even in the New Testament, when Jesus meets the woman at the well, men didn't generally go get the water. It was the women servants that did. So this was going to be an unusual thing that Jesus is telling about, whether it's prophecy, whether it's his omniscience, we don't know exactly what it is. Whether it was just something he had arranged ahead of time, we don't know exactly. But he says, you're going to find a man carrying a jug of water. He's going to meet you. Follow him into the house he enters. Tell the owner of the house, the teacher asks you, where is the guest room where I can eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished room upstairs. Make the preparations there. So they went and found it just as Jesus had told them, and they prepared the Passover. So now starting in verse 14, we're going to see Jesus eat the Passover meal with the apostles. He's going to tell them what the meal symbolizes. And then he's going to say, I want you to remember some things when you eat it. And then he's also going to toss in the fact that one of them is going to betray him. So let's read about it here in verse 14. It says, when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. Then he said to them, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup. And after giving thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. But look, the hand of the one betraying me is at the table with me. For the Son of Man will go away as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. So they began to argue among themselves, which of them it could be who is going to do it. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to the table today, I pray you open our hearts and open our minds to exactly what you have to say to us. That we don't come to this table just out of routine, that we don't just come because it's that Sunday that falls on this particular day of the calendar, whatever it might be, but instead we come to remember exactly what you've done for us and to give thanks for it. We pray it in your name. Amen. Like I said, up front, the Lord's Supper is something that's commonly taken, commonly done in in so many churches and in so many different ways. And and Each of them have kind of a plan for it all, but all of them do it, at least I would assume all of them do it for the same reason, and that is in remembrance of him. In remembrance of him. It's something we do to remember, and today I want to focus on some things that we must not forget. We must not forget, and the first thing is is that we must not forget this is a meal that we receive. The Lord's Supper is a meal that we take in. It's a meal that we take in. We take the elements and receive them into our bodies just as we took Jesus Christ and we received him into our lives. That reminder is that Christ lives in us. 
That reminder is that Christ lives in us, and he's not just living in us, but he's also working through us to make us more of what he wants us to be. And that, as we come to this table, should be tied to that fact. The fact that we're taking it in and reminded that we have Christ living in us. This is a receiving of a meal, but not just receiving. It is also a memorial. And when we take the bread and we take that cup, we have the responsibility of A, receiving it, but also, as Jesus has commanded, do this in remembrance of me. We're supposed to remember. We're supposed to remember. We must not forget to remember, as crazy as that is. Now, if you've ever seen It's a Wonderful Life, but he has all the strings on him, the, the, the guy that works at the bank. We can't forget to remember. We can't forget. On the night before Jesus was executed, he gathers all of his disciples together. And this is the final meal together before the, the Jewish authorities and the Roman authorities are going to, to haul him off to be crucified. And Jesus knew this. He knew exactly what he was going to be doing and he knew exactly what was going to take place. So he gathers together his closest friends. And in the sitting together with his closest friends, he says these words back in verse 19. He took the bread, gave thanks, broke it. He gave it to them and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We'll look a little bit later at Paul's writing and in, in recollection of this in 1 Corinthians, but Paul actually says it twice. Do this in remembrance of me. Here's something we need to hold on to, though. What does it mean to remember? What does the word remembrance here that, that Jesus is talking about? See, it's something bigger than just recollecting on the fact of something happening in the past. Actually, the word here means to make vivid to make real, to recall the reality of a deed. And so he's asking us to remember, and he's asking the disciples sitting at the table to remember, to make real the words of Jesus, to make real the life of Jesus, to make real the actions of Jesus, and then make real the death that brought us life. We talked about this a few weeks ago when we looked at the word salvation. We talked about the helmet of salvation. And one of the things that Jesus did for us is he redeemed us. We were redeemed, but also we are being redeemed, and even more so, we shall be redeemed. If you're not sure what I'm talking about, go back and check it out on YouTube. It's there for you to, to see. But when we look at the Lord's Supper, when we take the Lord's Supper, it commemorates that fact, and it challenges us to remember it, that we were redeemed, we're being redeemed, and we shall be redeemed. In order for us to remember, he chose two symbols. I know I'm going to break some amazing news to you here in just a second. But he took two things for us to really hold on to. He took food and drink. He took food and drink. Two things that are necessities for life. Two things that are extremely basic. And if you want to go more to just food and drink, you can go to bread and wine, or because we're in a Baptist church right now, juice, okay? And, and so we're looking at this in such a way that for the most part, these two things are the most basic things that you're going to find throughout history. Food and drink. It's going to be in every culture. And for the most part, bread and wine or bread and juice are going to be within that culture. You even see it today. Most houses you go into today, you're going to see bread. And for the most part, probably juice or wine. I always love it when I run into somebody at Sam's Club. And they go, oh, it's Pastor Matt, and they got a cart full, and they're like, oh, you know, trying to, trying to hide it. You're going to see it. It's, it's okay. 
You're going to see these things in our daily lives. But the great thing is, is that when they are connected to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they become more than just simple objects. They become that ability for us to remember. As a matter of fact, it awakens a memory. It awakens a memory. And I guess the best way to put it, it's almost like a memento or a keepsake. I go out on a limb here to say that all of us have some sort of memento or some sort of keepsake from some sort of important event in our lives. And a memento or a keepsake, they are defined as something that awakens a memory. I don't know what you have in your life, but my guess is when you see it, whether it be uh, maybe some weird collection of things that you had from your spouse before you guys ever got married, but you were dating and you kind of collected these things. Or, or maybe it's some big event that you went to or some trip that you went on or some friend gave you something. Or even if it's somebody who has passed away, it's something that you hold on to. When you see it, it brings back a life-giving memory. It, it, it stirs something inside of our soul. But when we look at what Jesus gave us, the bread and the juice, this little chalice, it has a little piece of bread here in the bottom, a little juice here on the top. When you do it, I would suggest do the bread first. That way when you go to do the bread and flip it over, juice doesn't dump all over your lap. But in it, when we look at it, we see basic elements that represent and stir up a life-giving. As a matter of fact, a literal life-giving moment in our life. When we met Jesus Christ and he changed us and he made us who we are. I began to think about this question this week and maybe you have as well. Where would you be without Jesus? What would your life look like without Jesus? Have you ever stopped and thought about that? I, I think about it because the, the family that I grew up in, uh, drugs were a part of it. Alcoholism was a part of it. All of these things that I think about that if I had never met Jesus, would I have gone down that path and would I even be alive still today? I mean, one side of my family, every relative I have that is my mom's brothers or sisters have all died. All by the time they were in their late 50s to early 60s. And I think to myself, what would my life look like if I had not met Jesus? What would my life look like if he had not changed me and, and is continuing to change me? I've been redeemed, I'm being redeemed, and I shall be redeemed. I don't ever want to take for granted the fact that Jesus came into my life and not just came into my life, but he had changed it. Uh, they're so easy for us to take for granted the wonder of the simple things, isn't it? I mean, when you think about it, the life change that took place when we were first had it happen, we're like, woo! Now we're like, oh, you know, oh, I gotta go to church. You know, it should never be that way. It should be, I get to celebrate with the people of God, whether it be in person or online, I get to celebrate with them, especially when it comes to the table, because that blood that was poured out and that body that was broken, it was done for me so I could live. How awesome is that? You know, I, I think about the things in our life that we do take for granted. I remember going to a concert and they, they were doing a big push for like Compassion International or Food for the Hungry, one of those kind of things like that. And they were trying to, to get some wells built in, in uh, these different villages. But he was like, have you ever gone around the, your house and counted how many faucets you have and how many just turned water on? 
We don't think about it. But my guess is those people who are walking two, three, four miles a day to get water and bring it back, they would think about it. They'd think about how awesome that is. And we're just like, oh. But when it doesn't work, we're like, oh, come on. Yeah, I mean, that's our natural reaction. Because we've taken those things for granted, whether it be a faucet or a light switch or sight. Anybody wake up this morning and be like, gosh, I'm glad I can see? We probably didn't, except I kind of did, because A, I knew what I was going to talk about in the message, and then B, um, I, my, my Bible app is on my phone, so I'm reading it, and I couldn't quite see the verse numbers, and I'm like, oh no, the downhill slide's beginning, here we go, it's, it's all over, you know, I couldn't quite see it. I, I don't really particularly want to wear glasses right now. I know it's cool for pastors, they get the cool one and everybody looks great, but I just like being me, you know, I'm fine with that. But we've taken that for granted. Our little Glory back here in the back, we found out she's profoundly deaf. And, and we're, we're looking forward to, we've already got a cochlear implant uh, specialist that we're working with and, and how that'll look. But either which way, she's still deaf. And I look at her and I go, what is she thinking right now? Because she doesn't understand us. She's been with us now for a year, but, but even for the first year, we thought she could hear and we were talking to her and we were doing things and what, what was it that she had? I mean, she's never known any different, but we do. And we take that for granted, to be able to, to hear, to be able to, to see, to be able to, to feel, to be able to touch, to be able, all of these things we take for granted far too often because even though it's an amazing thing, I mean, if you look at it scientifically and biologically, the, the eye is just an amazing thing. But, how much more amazing is Jesus Christ? God stepping down out of heaven to walk the earth with us, to live for us, to die for us. How much more amazing is that? That we just kind of go, uh. We can't just go, uh. And that's what this table brings us back around to. He paid a price. He paid a price for my freedom. And that price came with pain and suffering and sacrifice that came just from stepping down into heaven to this. I mean, I would choose the heavenly body over this body every day. But the reality as we begin to look at it is that he took that, and not just took that, but then for this last week as we see all the pain and the anguish from physical pain to the beatings to the, the mental pain of his close friend rejecting really two of his close friends rejecting him or all the disciples scattering and running away all of these things are things that he was feeling and going through for us through that broken bread that he talks about he reminds us that his body was broken to meet that hunger we have for salvation through the the blood poured out he reminds us that he meets our thirst for life and really even a thirst for the meaning of life how many people I've talked to that just are missing the meaning of life and this last year has made it clear and evident that they're missing something and that something is Jesus. That something is Jesus. Jesus became the perfect sacrifice with the broken body and the spilled blood. He became that spotless Passover lamb. You know, it's not coincidence that this happened at the same time as a Passover supper. But he did it once and for all, not something we have to do every year. And he atoned for our sin and he's redeemed us for all eternity. When we remember what Jesus has done for us, the vivid memories come pouring back into our minds of who we were, 
to who we are now and even more so where he's taking us and who we're going to be. When I think about that in my life, and I hope in your life as well, there's only one response. How do we respond to Jesus? How do we respond when we comprehend how deep the Father's love is for us? How do we respond when we, we look? Well, we can go back to last week when we talked about the questioning of Jesus' authority. We submit. We submit to him. Our response is to give to him our lives because he has given our lives or his life to us or for us. That is our response. Let me just take you back real quick to the upper room that Jesus shared this last meal with his disciples. Sharing a meal with friends was not uncommon and sharing the Passover meal with friends wasn't uncommon either. It'd be like us today gathering together for Thanksgiving. It's giving thanks and remembering exactly what God had saved them from through the, the slavery in Egypt and the Passover angel and the blood on the, on the doorposts and all the things. And this was a big celebration, at the same time, a remembrance. And if you've ever been to a Seder service before, if you haven't, I would challenge you to find one to go to because it's really eye-opening. And, and this Seder service basically would go through about 15 steps. And in those 15 steps, each step had remembrance or a meaning for remembrance and celebration from the deliverance that God had given. The disciples, my guess is, as they're sitting at that upper table, had gone through the Seder service their entire lives. They knew the 15 steps. They knew the liturgy that went along with it. They knew that the Passover feast would open with a prayer of thanksgiving. They knew that that would be followed by the drinking of the first of four cups of wine. Next, they ate bitter herbs and they would sing Psalm 113 and 114. Then a second cup of wine would be taken and they would begin eating that prepared Passover lamb as well as unleavened bread. After the meal, a third cup of wine would be taken and they'd sing Psalm 115 to 118 and then the fourth cup. They knew what was going to happen next. They knew what they were going to sing next. They, it might have been routine. It might have been something they just went through the motions. But then Jesus throws them a curveball that night. See, during the third cup of wine, he says these words. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. That was verse 20. That isn't part of the original script. That's not part of the things that they just went through in the motions. See, he was saying something different than the norm. Something they would know, though. It was something they were familiar with. And the reason why they're familiar with it is this. According to first century tradition, when a young Jewish man reached the marrying age and his family selected the appropriate wife for him, he and his father would actually meet the young woman and her father to negotiate a price. Now, I know you might be thinking, are you serious? Yes, I am. And if I had a daughter, I'll tell you what, I'm charging a whole, whole lot because there's nobody that's going to be worth, you know, be able to replace my daughter. I'll tell you that right now. But the whole idea was to replace the cost of losing a daughter. When the negotiations were complete, the custom was for the young man to do this. Uh, or sorry, the young man's father would pour a cup of wine and he'd hand it to his son. His son would turn to the young woman, lift up the cup and hold it out to her saying, guess what? This cup is a new covenant in my blood, which I offer you. More or less saying, I give you my life, 
Will you marry me? Will you pledge your love and life to me? That's more or less what he's saying here. Then the woman had a choice. She could take the cup and return it and say no, or she could answer without saying a word by drinking the cup. This was her way of saying, I accept your offer, and I will marry you, and I'll give you my life in return. So again, when the disciples sat down with Jesus for this Passover supper, they knew what was supposed to come next. And they knew when it came to the third cup of wine, which is called the cup of redemption, by the way, Jesus lifted up the cup and the disciples would expect him to say these words. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, for giving us the fruit of the vine. But guess what? That's not what Jesus said. That's not what Jesus said. Instead, he draws it to the idea of a husband and a wife. And that same husband and wife imagery is used uh, throughout the Gospels and especially by Paul in his writings to say, I love you. I'm going to give my life to you. Will you accept it and give me your life in return? When I read that this week, I was like, that makes all the sense in the world. That's the reason why the cup, that's the reason why the body broken. And to take a step further, he wasn't saying this is a new covenant like a husband would say. He said this is the new covenant. This is the new covenant because the old covenant was gone. The new covenant had come. The old covenant that was made with Moses was about obeying the law. This new covenant wasn't about outward things. It was about an inward thing. It was about an inward change that was taking place. It was a covenant of grace, not law. And that new covenant has come about by what we remember today. That connection between us and Jesus, the death of the pure spotless lamb on the cross, his body broken, his blood poured out, a life given and an offer made. My question for you is this. He gave his life for you. Have you accepted it? Have you accepted it? That's the first question. Have you accepted his offer of eternal life to wash away your sins and to make you new? If not, today is the day to do that. If you say, no, it's not. I'm not ready for that yet. That's between you and God. I will tell you this, though. Do not come to the table today. Because this table is meant for the followers of Jesus Christ. That's the table that it was originally with his followers that were around him. And so if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, please do not come to the table. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, whether this is your first time with us or you've been with us for almost, almost 11 years now, by the way, on Easter it'll be 11 years. If you've been with us that long, then please come. But as you come, there's one other thing I have to say to you. If you have accepted this offer, have you given your life to him in response to all that he has done for you? See, when we go back to Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28, he actually says we need to examine ourselves before we come to the table. We need to not come in an unworthy manner. So my question is, is how are you responding to Christ's invitation? Are you giving your life to him or are you giving your Sunday morning to him? Are you giving your life to him or are you giving the parts that you want him to have but you're keeping the parts that you want to keep? That is an examination of our hearts that we need to do on an individual basis. As a matter of fact, after I read this next scripture, I'm going to pray and I'm going to open up the table. And uh, in order to allow Chris and Micah to be able to participate with their families, um, we're actually just going to play some background music. It's going to be about nine, ten minutes long. And during that time, I, I just want us to reflect. I want us to 
to look inside of our own hearts. I want us to look inside our own lives and say, God, where am I with you? How have I received or even rejected your offer of pledging my life and my love to you? Where am I in that? And when you're ready, then come to the table. I'm not going to ask, will we all do it together? I'm going to ask you to take the cup, go back, uh, do the bread first, like I said, do the juice after, do it as an individual, do it as a family, but, but take time and, and remember and walk through this together. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read 1 Corinthians. I'm going to read Paul's account of this same night. I'm going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 26. I'm going to pray, the lights are going to dim, the music's going to start, and I'm going to allow you to come whenever. And after that, I'm going to ask Micah and Chris to come forward and, and lead us in one, one last song called Nothing But the Blood of Jesus. Because that's the only thing, as we will sing, that can wash away our sin. Let me read for you this last verse, and then we will pray. For I receive from the Lord what I also pass on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took the bread. And when he had given thanks, broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, we also took the cup after supper and said these words, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For often as you drink it, uh, often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray together. Father, again, we come to you humbly, in remembrance of all that you've done for us in our lives. The way you continue to work in us, the way you continue to change us, the way you continue to mold us into who you want us to be. God, I don't know the hearts in here, but you do. We can put on a good show on a Sunday morning if we have to, but God, you know the depths of our soul. And I pray you speak to us at that very place today. As we prepare to take this bread, as we prepare to take this juice, we don't take it flippantly, we don't take it lightly. Instead, we look at it in a way that we see exactly who you are. God, we love you, we're grateful for you, and we look forward to what you're going to do in our lives even today. I pray in your name, amen.